1: For more information, visit InternationalCulinaryCenter.com. Broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to Heritage Radio Network.org.
2: Fish. Hello and welcome to Cooking Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live every Tuesday from t- roughly 12, roughly 12, 1245, uh, here on the Heritage Radio Network in the back of Roberta's Pizzeria in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Joined with Joe and Jack in the engineering room, Nastasha the Hammer Lopez is always sitting next to me. How you doing, guys? Good. Good? Yeah. Yeah? Everyone good? Uh, good. So uh, I'm glad I got to do today's show because right after we have our weekly Roberta's Lunch, which, which Nastasha and I always enjoy, thanks to the radio station, they give us the free lunch. That's what we work for here, people, by the way. In case you were wondering... What the reward for the show is? It's the free lunch. <laughs> uh, but uh, after that, I'm going to the airport and going to Colombia, my favorite South American country. Of course, it's the only South American country I've gone to, but it is... No, uh, oh, Panama. Oh, it's central. Well, yeah, the Panamanians think Panama is, is South America, whereas because it's part of the skinny, skinny, skinny part, which I consider to be Central America, I call it Central American, but that kind of pisses them off because they consider themselves South American. I was like, if it's not Central America, then why do we? You know, what? Why is the canal there? Because it's the skinny part. In fact, it's the skinniest part, the skinniest part, right or wrong? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, Panama being my favorite Central American country I've ever visited, and uh, Colombia being my favorite South America. But I actually not just the only. I do actually like Colombia quite a bit. Going to Bogota, and the great news is, I'm going to look up your Lucuma stuff. By the way, even though they don't have it there, they have a close relatives I can play with, and I get to visit a coffee plantation in uh Armenia, which is in you know the heart of Colombian coffee growing uh thing. So I'm gonna hopefully if there if it's there right now, pick some coffee, do some fun stuff, and report back next week with uh, news of uh, coffee. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Call in your questions two seven one eight four nine seven two one two eight. That's seven one eight four nine seven two one two eight. Got some questions from last week that I didn't do. Uh, this one in from uh, Senor Trepas. Uh, I answered his question last week about uh, Carpano uh, Vermouth, but don't believe I answered his question about cherries. I, uh, I'm interested in making shelf stable maraschino or bourbon style or maraschino or bourbon style cherries. All the recipes I found call refrigerated storage for a period of weeks. I want to keep them at cellar temperatures for up to a year. Okay, well look, so uh, the actual things that you buy in the store as uh, maraschino cherries... Uh, What they do with those things is they they bleach the color and flavor out of them and make them stable in a solution of uh, kind of like sulfur dioxide, which is a bleacher and a preservative and and an antifungal, I think, and uh, calcium chloride. Calcium chloride is what gives maraschino cherries that hardness, right? Because what what the calcium is doing – calcium chloride is actually horrible because it tastes bad. But calcium chloride, uh, what it does is the calcium helps to cross-link the um, pectin. Inside of the cherry and cause the the flesh of the cherry to not break down uh, over time, right? So that's why the calcium is there. Then they put it in uh, food coloring and syrup over a length of time to reinfuse it with sugar because it doesn't really have any much sugar left or flavor or anything like that. Uh, and that's not that that's not the way to do it. That that's horse that's horse hockey. Uh, Toby Cicchini, the bartender famous for the Cosmo. I think I did mention him last week in re- regard to cherries. But I gave a very abbreviated share. Cher- if I talked about cherries at all, it was super abbreviated, and I, I apologize. Uh, so he he makes his own, but I don't have his recipe. I wasn't able to get in touch with him and get his recipe. But uh, you want to look up uh, – the person to look up on this on the internets is uh, Darcy O'Neill from uh, The Art of the Drink, who also did Fix the Pumps, the incredibly uh, influential book on uh, kind of re back stuff from the soda fountain days, from the soda jerk days. Uh, and so, okay, so I'm going to compile all of, all of these things. First of all, uh, some of the patents online and Mar- maraschino cherries in the store are made with sweet cherries. Old style real cherries, uh, like, like cocktail cherries, are uh, brandied sour cherries. And to- at least that's what I'm told. And Toby tells me that he's tested sweet cherries and sour cherries, i.e., or sour and or bitter cherries, like, you know, um, you know Morellos and all those things. And says that the sweet ones are horrible and insipid and the sour ones are the ones you want. And that's actually borne out if you get the Italian uh, preserved cherries. They're the smaller kind, like you know the the ones that we get in the blue ceramic jar, whose name escapes me. But they're smaller and uh, they, you know not the not the sweet style. Now, uh, the, if you want a, a good free guide to old cherry varieties, i.e., cherry varieties prior to about 1920, uh, look up cherries of new york uh you can get a pdf version online for free it's like from the teens or 20s and it's got full color pictures of all the cherry varieties that were grown in new york at that time which is also a wide range of all the cherry varieties that, that existed not not all of them by by a long shot but ones that are available here in new york uh from the geneva agricultural experiment station and i ha- i have actually have the whole collection in hard hard copy now listen here's what i'm going to say i'm violently allergic to cherries i can't eat them haven't been able to eat them since i was 30 or 31 so uh so bear that in mind Uh, Don't, like, you know, like, anything here, I can't actually test it for you because it'll kill me. Okay. Now, the trick... Uh, with, there's, there's two tricks. One, you want to keep the cherries firm. And two, you want to, gr- you know, gradually preserve the cherries so that they don't rot. So, uh, typically there's two things we add to cherries to preserve them. Sugar, to increase the sugar content so that we're storing them high sugar so that they don't go bad. And two, uh, we're adding an acid, which is an antifungal in the thing, that, uh, it's basically a preserved antibacterial antifungal thing in the syrup. And three, uh, you're going to add, uh, Sugar, alcohol, whatever. I forget. One, two, three, four, five, whatever. Uh, like sugar, alcohol, um, sugar, alcohol, acid, and calcium you're going to add to this. But you have to do it carefully because you have to preserve the osmotic balance of the cherry so that they don't shrivel and or rupture. And I'm going to come back and give you what the answers to that is. But I have a caller on the air. Caller, you're on the air. Hey,
3: Dave. Uh, big fan. I got a question for you today about the shellfish protein. Oh, so, uh, <laughs> trying to make uh, Todman uh, sort of fish paste, a little bit of egg, some curry, fried, delicious Thai street food, uh, and was thinking of trying it with um, shrimp paste. In fact, have was thinking of frying it around some sugar cane. Problem is, when you grind up shrimp shrimp paste, toss a little egg, it falls apart when you throw it in oil. And I uh, was curious, you know, I realized, oh maybe that's why crab cakes are much harder to keep together than burgers, but I was hoping you could shed a little light on what's going on, and if there's a relatively
2: simple fix huh well uh i wouldn't have expected that um but i mean obviously the easiest fix i mean aside from actually figuring out what's going on in the recipe formulation is just to add a little bit of transglutaminase to it uh like activa rm and it would bind it you know lickety split is there enough salt in there for the proteins to bind together
3: yeah yeah uh there's uh, the uh I add a pinch of salt to everything. I uh, didn't add uh, a crazy amount, um, but uh, and shrimp has some natural salt in it, does it not?
2: Yeah, should. And And you process it long enough for it to get a good, what looked like a good bind in the mix before you fried it?
3: Yeah.
2: That's very odd. But I know for a fact that shrimp with a little bit of transglutaminase added to it if uh you know if you'd have to poach it probably first in a little uh in a little water stock to set the outside but they won't break ever never they will not break um i mean that's what wiley you know does to to make his uh, shrimp noodles and those things i've fried them and they fry fine so i'm assuming that egg also containing protein wouldn't interfere with the bind with the uh with the uh, I'm just so surprised although when you think about it like I always when I'm doing things I never do straight shrimp like in my sausages and poaching mixtures for like fish canals it's always fish, scallops and shrimp hmm. So, I'm, so maybe there is something yeah. strange about, about shrimp. Uh, but, I mean, do you have access? I mean, you can, for Modernist Pantry, you can buy a fairly small amount of transglutaminase, and it's fairly easy to use. Just sprinkle a little bit in. Don't go – I wouldn't – the maximum you can add is 1% by weight, but it, you don't need nearly 1% by weight just to, just to keep it together. In fact, that might make it too firm.
3: All right. I will uh I'll try, it, but uh, so there's I'm curious though, you know wh- why do crab cakes fall apart more easily than uh, than a burger or something like that? Is there something about seafood proteins that uh, make them bind less than, uh, than, than meat?
2: Yeah, well, crab cakes, remember, crab cake is being formed from uh, meat, at least when I make them, that's already been cooked once. So there's not uh, like a a lot of the proteins already coagulated in it, and so the and especially kind of the lump style crab meat that you're using the bigger bigger chunks aren't going to want to bind together. So you know in a in a native in a native un uh, uncooked protein it hasn't been coagulated yet. Um, you know there 's a lot of soluble you know liquid bound proteins you add salt more of those things come out and they've kind of form a gluey sticky matrix and then when the heat sets uh, you know sets them, it sets into kind of a solid matrix like a sausage that 's how it works but whereas like, something like crab meat you know it 's already been set so you can't you can 't do it yeah. i don't know. yeah I mean again, you can take uh, crab meat and bind it with transglutaminase and get it to stick together, or you could add some uncooked protein like fish protein to it to help bind it if you don't want to add other extenders but the crab meat itself is never going to bind together as well just because it's cooked okay thanks
3: for that. I'll try it out much you know. okay. cool thanks all right.
2: all right so back to the cherries for a second so here's what you want to do uh, if you go to Darcy O'Neill's website, uh, The Art of the Drink, which I, first of all, highly recommend that you do, you should go to his website. I don't know, buy his, you know, acid phosphate soda. Support the man, you know, he's uh, doing very good work for all of us in in the world of cocktail and technologies. Uh, and he's an actual scientist. I don't know if he still does science for a living or whether he just does cocktail stuff for a living. Anyways, uh, w- what you want to do is figure out about how much sugar in uh, is in your cherry. And I don't really, I don't know that I trust his numbers 100% cuz i've read other numbers but he's basically saying that the bricks equivalent bricks which is weight of sugar in uh in water for a cherry is somewhere on the on the order of 5 or 6 to 16 uh bricks i've heard as much up to like uh you know up to 20, 22 22 uh, bricks, percent sugar on, a, on one of the sweeter cherries. So you're going to want to start with a sugar syrup, only slightly more sugary than that. So one-to-one simple syrup is going to be too much to start with. Start lower and work your way up. Add acid, and Darcy says that malic and citric are the two components that are mainly the acids in there. So you're going to want to add probably more malic than citric, although that's also what kind of limes taste like. So you're going to want to add malic and citric acid. You're going to want to add uh, sugar, right? And then you gradually increase the sugar content of the syrup. Uh, Now, he says to make sure there's enough syrup in there such that the sugar content doesn't decrease too much because of the water that goes in. But I would say... Go a little bit stronger, add add a a little bit as you go, get a strong syrup, and then after it's preserved in syrup, start doping in alcohol, like super high-proof ethanol, until it gets to where you want it, and then you should be good uh, for a year. But please go read uh, Darcy O'Neill's posts on uh, preserved cherries. Now, we have a caller. Oh, uh, also. uh, Anyway, caller, you're on the air.
1: Hey,
4: Dave. uh, I just made about 20 pounds of homemade sausage. Nice. And... Yeah, and I cooked it the way I usually cook sausage, and it—I uh, did like a, a link of each batch I made. I did like four different ones, and they all turned out really mealy. And uh, I did a little research, and it says it's just from the the fat breaking from taking it, making it too hot. Right. And I'm wondering why, why you know I, I can do it in the lower temp next time, but I'm wondering why normal sausages don't uh, break like that because. The way the way I normally cook it is, is you know, I'll, I'll brown it on one side in a pan, and then flip it and put a little water in the pan and cover it. And then after about ten minutes, I take it off and let the and then cook it until it's kind of browned a little more.
2: Yeah, no, what they're talking about with high temperature isn't on the cook side. They're talking about high temperature on the make side.
4: Oh, okay.
2: So, like, typically, uh, I mean, what kind of sausage was it again?
4: Well, I. I, I did uh, some uh, some Thai chicken with some ground up chicken thighs and a little uh, fat back in there, and then put Thai chilies and Thai basil. I did a turkey with uh, dried cherries a lot of stuff all out of the charcuterie
2: book. Right. So, yeah, but so not emulsified though. Regular like so, regular sausage mixers, not not like made into a batter emulsified, right? I mean t- fat. Right. T- right. Okay. Yeah, I think um are you partial, are you par freezing the, the 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 meat and the fat before you grind it?
4: Um I tried to um I don't have a great grinder though, and so it was kind of just making more of a paste than actual but half of the half of the sausages I made, I just bought from our local butcher shop. They ha- they make their own sausages, and they sold me a pre-ground blend of you know pork bell or pork shoulder and pork fat to you know like thirty five percent fat. And they just sold it to me pre-ground, so I wouldn't think that that would break as well.
2: Huh? And that that one's the one that went mealy, the one that they did pre-ground for you.
4: All of them did. The ones I ground myself, and the ones that they had pre-ground.
2: I mean, that—that's look, look. The cooking technique that you talk about, the is you know the old school one: pre-pre poach and then and then brown off. Right? That's what you said you do. That's what right. that's what I typically do when I, if I don't have a circulator. I mean, that's good technique. So that's not that's not doing it. So it's got to be. I mean, typically when you're looking at sausage manufacture, there's you – know, the, the main things are do you have a high enough fat content, which you do. You asked. You got it, right? Do you have a high enough yeah. salt content to get a good bind going? Because that will also mean it won't bind together well if you don't have a, a high enough salt content because the salt is what's allowing the proteins to uh, kind of come out and form that, that bind in, in a sausage mix, right? So was it bound right? If it's not bound right, it's going to be more like you know compressed hamburger meat, right? Th- right. Three – was the temperature of the of the fat and, and whatnot cold enough when it was ground so you're not getting weird smearing effects and, and then you'll get a lot of, you know, if the fat tissue is disrupted and, and melted instead of, you know, ground cleanly, then you'll bleed the fat out and you'll be left with dry and, and mealiness. So the, the temperature of the of the meat is important and, you know, proper trim is important when you grind it. And thirdly, the temperature is vitally important in emulsified sausages because you're making an emulsion and the emulsion will break if it gets too hot. and Really, those uh, those are the main factors that I always. I mean, not that I'm a huge expert in it, but those are the main factors that I always look for in troubleshooting a sausage problem to see what's gone wrong. But from what you've told me, I can't really figure out what you know. I can't really figure out which one of those kind of like main precepts of sausage making were violated. Especially because you say you've done it before without problem, right?
4: Yeah, and I mean that's I, I, you know when I cook regular commercial sausage, they never break the way I cook them. So I was wondering if they added something to it, and uh, you know to keep it from doing that, or if it's just I uh, messed up somehow this time.
2: I mean, you can add things to sausage to keep them from breaking, but you you shouldn't have to. Do you know what I mean? So right. like anything right. that you add to a commercial sausage, uh, anything that's added to to things to stabilize them are there to. It, just in case somebody happens to abuse them like carrageenan or things like that. But they're, they shouldn't ever be necessary to, uh, to, to produce a good, a good sausage. I mean the only things necessary are high fat content, proper temperature regulation during manufacture and proper uh, salt content. And, and of course, proper fat type. If you add a fat that's been rendered, that's going to be horrible. If the fat's already been rendered once, you know, it's never going to come back to its native form. And then the fat won't hold in properly. All the fat will bleed out and it's going to be a huge nightmare, you know? I mean, like, like you you, you weren't using, like, you were using, you said, fat back.
4: Yeah, I got fat back from the local butcher shop and chopped it up and put it in the freezer. But I was using a new, uh, I mean, it's actually a vintage uh, grinder I got from my dad. It's a... Uh, it's just a rival sausage grinder. But it, it seemed like it was really maybe grinding it too much where the, the fat wasn't making coming out in little chunks more than when it was coming out in almost a paste. So I'm thinking I might have ground the fat too much.
2: Yeah, if the fat was, like, came out like a, I mean, it's, again, like, it's hard to know, like, if it comes out as a paste and you're breaking it up uh, too much, then perhaps it, you know you would need to treat it then more like an emulsified sausage. If that breaks and those that weeps out, right? Then uh, you're you know it's not going to so. You know, anytime you have fat, fat isn't, you know, obviously fat's not just fat. Fat is mixture of fat and connected tissue and, 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 a, and a bunch of other things. And so when it's native, it'll hold itself kind of in, in, in place properly. And when it's been melted out, then it's never going to hold itself right, which is why you want to make, which is why they don't want the fat to get smeared when they're grinding, when you're grinding for sausage. But, but maybe the blade isn't sharp on the, on the, uh, on the grinder you might sharpen the blade and look at it, just making sure you're getting good good contact it should it should grind clearly and shouldn't come out warm at all or like a paste you know what i mean
4: yeah I think that's the problem. It's, it's something from back in the 70s, and you know, it probably hasn't been sharpened for 30 years.
2: So, right, I mean, those so should work, that. like the old Porkert style or Rival. They're all the same. With the, they look like they, they look like the KitchenAid, but the barrel it looks like it's been it pulled out in Photoshop, right? One of those guys. It, yeah,
3: yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. And they're like you know they're like uh, like shi- shiny tin plate cast iron. Those guys. They they, yeah. they should work. Um, you you know it's just maybe the blade wasn't sharp. Uh, you, you should also put the grinder in the freezer as well, so the grinder's cold. Okay. Uh, but it sounds like maybe that's what 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 happened is that you maybe uh, you, you know the, something went wrong with the fat back, and uh, it just didn't gr- it didn't grind right. Paste it out and then uh, and then leaked on you when you cooked it.
4: So there's no salvaging it. I, this, I took some, you know, some leftover and made burger type, you know, an uncased and fried them up, and those seemed to taste all right. Should yeah, I'm the sure they would. Up out of the casing?
2: Yeah, yeah, you could do that, or you know, I mean, the the real problem is is that if you had super accurate temperature control, you might be able to to cook them at like a straight like a 140, and then like let do a quick sear off on the outside without melting it out too much. But I you know I don't know. I'd have to see because I don't really know. At those temperatures, you know, some of the pig fat will remain semi, not super liquid. mean, it'll all liquefy, but not like super liquid, and you might get it to not kind of run everywhere and go crazy. But uh, yeah, I think maybe breaking it up might be, breaking it up and, and making patties out of it might be the way to go. All right, Dave, thanks for the help, buddy. Hey, thanks, and uh, let, let me know next time you try whether uh, fixing that solved it. All right, cool. All right, cool. Take it easy. You too. All right, so listen, Jack, why don't we go to our, or Joe, I don't know who's there right now. Why don't we go to our first commercial break with cooking issues? Hello. And so that, uh, the band, uh, Jack tells me, that is fellow radio show host Damon Bolte's band called Brothers because Damon Bolte has a twin brother who apparently is also in the band. it would be funny is if he had a band called Brothers and his twin brother wasn't in the band. That would be more funny, I think. I think maybe he should do that. They should have some sort of rift. But you should go definitely go check them out and see them if you're really into seeing nine feet tall, uh, skinny uh, bartenders. Um, uh, play music, right? Yeah. He is kind of really tall man. Yeah. yeah. He's like as tall as Tristan. Yeah. He's a tall man. Mm-hmm. How tall would you say uh, Damon is? He's
1: taller than me. I mean, he's got to be a good six three.
2: Yeah, yeah. How does he does he fit into the chairs here in the studio? He does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's never been on my show. He should be. I've never been on his show. You know why? He hates me. No, he does. I know, I know. He doesn't hate me at all. I'm just kidding. He's a good man.
1: Damon. Who I said, or who I was talking to, who said that they would like to be on the show is uh, Tosi. Yeah, see Tozy? Yeah, wouldn't that be cool? I would love that.
2: Yeah, we'll do that. And uh, back to Damon for a second. Do you know he makes an excellent old fashioned? Were you aware of that fact?
1: Uh, Well, I I assumed as much, but excellent, excellent. Special about his old
2: fashioned? They're they're very delicious. He made uh, what was the old fashioned he made first at the museum event?
1: Oh, I don't remember. But it was
2: damn good. (laughs) Yeah. It was like he, he was like I'm going He's like he doesn't talk like this. He's like I'm gonna do something really simple. So going to make an old fashioned. It's gonna be delicious crap on you guys. He doesn't talk at all like that. He's not like that. But listen, speaking of old fashions and cocktails and food. Yeah. You need to come to HeritageRadioNetwork.org's members-only party, September 9th, between 5 and 8 p.m. at Roberta's. Roberta's, Roberta's Pizza, 261 Moore Street in Brooklyn, New York. There will be food from Gramercy Tavern, Back 40 West, Del Posto, Momo Sushi, Inside Park, Parish Hall, Heritage Foods USA, catered by Roberta's. See the table, Saks will be Cheesemongers, and Heritage Meat Stop. Cocktails by none other than me, Dave Arnold. El Bucó Mezcal, Galeano, Absolute Vodka, Plymouth Gin, and Pierre Jouet Champagne. Beer by GreatBrewers.com, Greenport Harbor Brewing, and Cane Vineyard and Winery. Buy your tickets for $150. What does a VIP ticket get you, brother?
1: Uh, but wait, before we get there, uh, yep. if you enter Cooking Issues HRN at the checkout, we'll give you $25 off.
2: Holy crap! $25 off? Yeah, Yeah, and there's going to be plenty of food and drink here, right? Oh, yeah.
1: I mean like a lot, right? to get the VIP, you get a little private tour of uh, the chocolate factory in the neighborhood. There'll be some special cocktails that won't be available at the party just for the VIP. Um, and a whole bunch of other surprises. So.
2: And by that, what we mean is special means Nastasha won't scowl at you when she gives it to you.
1: That's right. She'll smile at you. Yeah,
2: yeah. and then you can have both experiences. You can come during the VIP section and get the smile and then come back during the regular section and get scowled at so you can get the double. And that's the only.
1: might be a private concert from Joe and his band Big Ups, too, for the VIPs. I'm not sure. That's not confirmed. Not
2: confirmed, but possible? Possible. possible. And there will be raffle tickets there for $25. Uh, the VIP, I think I mentioned, is $250. Now listen, listen. I don't know whether you notice whether you listen, but I, I I believe that every time we say we say heritageradio.org. dot org, and what that means is is that we are a nonprofit here at Heritage Radio, which means we need some money to keep this uh, going. We need to make sure that we have people in the engineering booth making this stuff happen. This stuff ain't free, people. Jack, am I right about this? It's
1: not free. I wish it was free. It's
2: not free, and you know we have you know sponsors, but listen, the sponsors we take are sponsors that we believe in. That, that and you know it's, it's not we're not a commercial. We're not a commercial thing here where anyone can come and just, you know, plunk down money. It's just not the way it operates. This is like the – we operate more like uh, PBS. We take kind of good people's money when they want to give it to us and then we rely on you guys for the rest. Is this true or is this false?
1: You're nailing it.
2: Yeah. Okay. So listen. Please sign up. Come to the party. Uh, I'll try to get Nastasia to even smile at the non-VIPs but, you know, no no, uh, no guarantees.
1: You know, if somebody buys a ticket now, Joe might be able to get lunch today. <laughs> Oh man. I'm just kidding. Joe get lunch. Yeah, but
2: it's going to be a good lunch if he gets a ticket now. That's right. By the ticket it'll be a good lunch. Yeah, okay. <clears throat> now, yeah, otherwise you like you feed them out of what? The scraps bins here at uh, at Roberta's? Like when people leave a slice of pizza, like that's what you guys get?
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Scraps. Snacky tunes scraps, that's what we eat.
2: Yeah, you going to help these guys or what? People, please. All right. Uh speaking of, uh Joel writes in. Uh Joel Gargano writes in with a big shout out to Joe and big ups, effing awesome is what he said. He, he is actually interested in starting uh, another band with you uh, and uh, doing the old mosh pit. The old bringing, bringing mosh pits back. Do they still Joe? Do they still have mosh pits nowadays?
5: Yes, they do. There we have some mosh pits, but I think you're supposed to be in this band too, dude. Oh, really? I think he wants he wants you in it too.
2: Oh, all right. I mean, do they still are mosh pits like like what level of mosh pit are they now? Do they, do they are the frat boys still there actually trying to knock people over, or is it more like it used to be?
5: Well, it depends on well, you know where you're where you're performing, but you know sometimes you get some people that are just you know, going to kick the crap out of me, and I uh, get kind of scared.
2: Yeah, but, but there's kick the crap out of, yeah, there's there's kick the crap out of, and then there's kick the crap out of, you know what I mean?
5: Right, there's, like, the fun get the crap kicked out of you. Yeah, like, if you take a, yes, yeah. yeah,
2: if you take, like, a Doc Martin to the face, because someone's flying over your head, like, that's all in good fun, as that's far as I'm right. concerned.
5: But if there's, like, some guy who's just, like, uh, you know, red in the face, and steam coming out of his ears, and he just looks at you, and just stares you down, and he's you know, this guy's just coming after you.
2: Yeah, d bags. They ruin it for everyone.
5: Exactly. And then I just go hide in the bathroom.
2: Yeah, that's that's weak. That's weak sauce. Listen, do they still do uh, crowd surfing in the mosh pits these days? Oh, definitely. It's good to see some things haven't changed. I know, exactly. Yeah. All right. Uh, So now, another question in from Joel. Uh, What's the best way to get coffee flavor into beer? We want to use a local roaster's beans and not buy a pre-made extract. My brother just began operations as a brewer here in Connecticut, Thimble Island Brewing. Uh, I'd like to try their product. Maybe someone could send us some Thimble Island Brewing product, right? Try it. Try it. It's only in Connecticut. Very close to us. And we were doing a number of tests to see the best way to infuse coffee into a stout uh, and hold off the overly bitter-slash-acidic flavors. I'm thinking cold extraction is best suited. You're correct. Uh, I went through the infusion post on the Cooking Issues blog and got some good ideas, yet nothing has proven to be tasty on its own. Here's what I did for testing before I attempt to get the coffee flavor into beer. I uh, made an extract in room-temperature water, Uh, At uh, 100 uh, to – one, I can't really understand uh, this thing, but 250 grams of uh, coarse ground coffee, medium roast, um, and did like three-minute, one-minute infusions in the ISI whipper with uh, charges and then uh, blah, 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 blah. Uh, Anyway, uh, your numbers here are way too uh, not long. Way too not long. What's the right word for that? Way too short. Short is the word I'm looking for. Uh, Nastasha actually helped me with that. She gave me this look, and I was like, oh, yeah, short. Uh, but uh, when people are doing cold brew in the ISI, they're doing it usually for a much, much longer period of time. When I do it, I do it for two minutes, three minutes because I'm using alcohol and not water, right? So you could actually do a straight infusion into alcohol, or you could take much longer and infuse it into water. Uh, and you had this question right here. like, should I change the liquid medium? Yes. Yes. Um, "'Should we toss the whole beans into the fermenter and hope for the best?' No, I would not do that. If I w- what I would do is look your beers, I don't know what your beers are coming in at, but if let's say they're coming in at like five, five, six percent alcohol, somewhere in there, seven percent, eight, whatever. Uh, I'm usually extracting into twenty percent alcohol. Uh, sorry, forty percent alcohol. So my infusions with coffee are very strong, and they happen very quickly, even at room temperature under an ISI infusion uh, regime. I know people that have done cold infusion of coffee into uh, water and liquor in f- huge, fi- in huge, by my standard. It's five-gallon containers like corny kegs, uh, but they're letting it sit a lot longer. With your low alcohol percentage, you are going to have to go uh, a lot longer. Now... Uh, I mean, you give it a shot. But my problem with it, if you make super concentrated extracts is they tend, to go, they tend to go bitter. If you're allowed to use an alcohol-based extract, then you could do an alcohol-based coffee extract and dope it in afterwards, right? Just use ISI with, um, with high proof. And that's going to be – because if you're actually going to do this in a commercial fashion, you're going to have a difficult time uh, you know, infusing the entire amount of each batch of coffee that you make. Now um, – you also say I grabbed a Starbucks via packet, which is their like supposedly high grade version of uh, of uh, you know, freeze dried coffee. I've never tried it. And poured some into a Guinness, it tasted pretty good. Is that a better route? I know Wiley uses that stuff in sauces and whatnot. Uh, I don't know whether he does or not, actually. I haven't talked to him about it. that's interesting. Uh if so, how can I make it myself? That stuff's just freeze dried uh coffee. And then you ask lastly, what about this guy? And you know, obviously the readers can't yeah, viewers can't whatever they are, can't uh See it, but it filters the beer, uh, beer through a bunch of beans before kegging or bottling, and you post a link to the Randall. So, what a Randall is 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 a Randall in beer in beer parlance is almost um, uh, a modified uh, water filter that was developed by the Dogfish Head Brewery uh, people to do post infusion. They were they developed it for hops, and what you're doing is. Running the beer out of the keg through a container full of hops that infuses on its way out to the tap. Now the issue with it, and people have done a lot of coffee in it to, to add coffee flavors to it. You have to use whole beans with something like that because ground beans are going to cause wicked foaming, wicked, wicked foaming. So you need to use whole beans in that, and I don't know how much beer you can filter through it and get the same taste, how long it needs to sit, et etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, so I haven't run any tests with it, but there's plenty of people doing it. Uh, there's lots of links out there on how to build a Randall with uh, parts that you, know, you can buy in a regular hardware store along with things you can buy at a homebrew shop. And what they all amount to is modifying water filters so that you can uh, run, the, uh, run the beer through the water filter on the way out to the tap. Now... The Dogfish Head guys realize that foaming is a big problem because, duh, foaming is going to be a big problem when you do that. And so their new version, which is on their website and you can see it and they tell you the parts you need to build it, but I don't think they build it for you, is has the initial infusion chamber and then a secondary chamber with ice surrounding it to keep the temperature down. That's an anti, anti-foam chamber. Uh, so that's an interesting thing. Go look at Randall. And it's named after Randall, the enamel, Randall the, the enamel eating whatever, blah, 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 because the first thing had so much hops in it when they put it through it that they said it ate the enamel off of your teeth. And those guys at Dogfish Head have to come up with crazy names for everything. They just can't help themselves. They can't help it. Uh, so go look that up and uh, try making some extracts with higher proof ethanol or doing it a lot longer with water. Or you could do that a lot longer with water in five-gallon batches, like hours or maybe you know hours and hours or maybe overnight. Uh, or do traditional grind and then like uh, Kyoto-style cold, uh, cold brewing. Anyways, let's take one more commercial break and we'll come back with Cooking Issues.
0: And you're listening to Heritage Radio. Hell Network.
2: yeah! Yeah, Mark Ladner calling it out. What do you think, there, Stiles? Did you know that he, uh, no, he wasn't even listening? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He did a uh, he did a shout out for. Uh,
1: Wait,
3: I can do
0: it again. No. Hello, this is Mark Ladner from Del Posto, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network.
2: Gladnor, that's by the way, like, that's like if you ever ask Nastasha a question, like, her, like, the only honest answer she can ever give you, I wasn't listening, I wasn't listening. <laughs> Yeah, right? All right. So a question from before we missed, from Andrew Marcus on gummy candies. Uh, hey, uh, gang. I've recently been trying to make gummy candies at home but running into some issues, so I thought I'd just defer to you before spending more money on other ingredients that might just lead to more dead ends. Ideally, I'd rather not use gelatin for my veggie friends and potentially not have to cook it so much to preserve the delicate flavors. Nothing specific yet. In other words, on the delicacy of the flavors, just a preference. After reading around, it looks like the only way to achieve the first half, i.e. vegetarian, is with cornstarch, uh, or pectin, with which both seem to require tons of sugar and require lots of heat. But maybe I'm way off. I was working with gel low-acyl and high-acyl gel previously, but haven't been able to get anything nearly chewy enough with good elasticity and shear. Do you have any advice? Usage rates for those hydrocolloids would be awesome too. Oh, if I can make it even more complicated, is there any way to add alcohol to the recipe, or would that increase the liquid portion too much and make the gel too loose? Thanks for any help you can give, Andrew Marcus. Okay. Uh, you're not going to have any actual alcoholic candy that's gummy because by the time you get the solids level high enough, you're, you're not going to have much alcohol left in it at all. You can make things that are hard like rocks, really jelly, gel, 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 uh, that have – bless you. Thank you. That have uh, fairly high alcohol. The limit with most hydrocolloids in higher concentrations to get good gel strength is about twenty percent alcohol in the fine, finished thing. I've done with some hydrocolloids higher, like I've done fluid gel, agar fluid gels at like 28 percent, then got them to work. Alcohol, uh, especially if the al- you have to add the alcohol later with agar because alcohol can't be boiled at agar setting temp, uh, you know agar um, uh, temperatures to. Well, brain's gone today. The temperatures that you require to get the ag- agar. Fun- functional. Hydrate. There we go. Uh, you, um, you, you, the alcohol will boil off before those temperatures happen. So most things that are, so you can do like a uh, fluid gel that's pretty high in alcohol using agar, uh, or any, any one of those things, and you can set gels with them with a high enough, if you add a high enough, not a, too high in alcohol. My brain is so fried today. Crazy. Anyways, so, but you're not going to get something that's a gummy candy that has actual uh, appreciable amounts of alcohol in it, although it can have the flavor, the base flavor of an alcohol just by adding it and boiling off all of the water and alcohol in it. Okay, so that's that part of the question. Also, low acyl and high acyl gelan, uh, mixes, you're not gonna be able to get, uh, the, look, you can get very good gelatin replacement with high acyl and low acyl gelan in the ratios that are normal for gelatin, but in the super high ratio that's in a gummy candy of gelatin in there, it's not gonna have the same texture there that gelatin will. So I don't think you're gonna be barking up the right tree with that. I've looked into other hydrocolloid replacers, uh, to do gelatin replacement, and the one most people use seems to be agar. Agar also, I mean, having done high high percentage alcohol, uh, sorry, high percentage agar uh, gummies before, uh, there's not going to get the right amount, there's not going to get the right texture with that. You might be able to, I haven't looked it up, uh, I wasn't able to, to check it out, but there are kappa carrageen and locust bean gum mixes, and you can actually use agar and locust bean gum, but it's not quite the same. But, uh, and go to CP Kelco and look up their gelatin replacers, or call them CP Kelco, and they might have a kappa carrageenan slash locust bean gum, and the kappa is providing the gelling, and the locust bean gum is getting it to act more like uh, more like gelatin, make it softer. They might have a mix that can be used in a high at a high enough ratio to allow it to do. Uh, gummy candies But I, I don't know And I doubt it's ever going to have The stretch and pull Of a gummy bear I mean you might get something similar Now the real awesome one Is as you say Pectin But you do have to cook The the, the, the crap out of pectin To get it to work What you could do Is cook the bulk of it and overcook it slightly and then add super concentrated fresh flavors back and uh, Nastasha and I did that years ago with uh, we uh strawberry fresh strawberry juice down to uh, like a si- high, high brick syrup overcooked pectin and sugar and then mixed it in we never achieved hard thing we achieved like a toffee yeah. but it was the most delicious toffee I've ever had in my life I, I wish I had that right now it was so delicious <laughs> it was just really hard for us to calculate exactly what the bricks was because what you're doing when you're boiling is taking it to a certain temperature but what you're really shooting for is a certain liquid content and pectin requires high acidity and a high uh, solids content and that's why you have to cook it you don't want to cook it um, you can't cook it quickly because if you cook it quickly you're going to scorch the fruit at the bottom which is the problem why everything has to be done slowly and more mellowly but uh, you know maybe you could get away with adding a little bit you know, after the fact after it's been cooked up to temperature as long as you get the the ratios right so sorry I couldn't be super helpful but uh, but there you there you have it. Okay. Uh, and I'm going to have to rock through these or Jack's going to pull my microphone out because it's just the kind of guy he is. Remember, we don't have enough money to keep my microphone plugged in. I'm just kidding. They have another show coming on is actually what the story is. Okay. Have a question in from uh, – is this from Paul? Uh, In one of the Cooking Issues Radio uh, episodes, Dave mentioned that he uses a particular sharpening stone. It's proving impossible to find the name by going back through all the episodes. Would it be possible to email me the name? I think it was three initials or an acronym or three initials. Well, better than that, here it is in the real life. DMT. Uh, I use Duo Sharp DMT uh, Diamond uh, Whetstones. Uh, When you're buying a whetstone, uh, none of the real hardcore knife people use this and they're going to say I'm a bad human being for using it, but when I actually sharpen everyone's like, man, it's pretty freaky sharp, it's pretty freaky sharp. You want to get the largest stone you can possibly uh, get because uh, that's going to make sharpening large stones easy. The one I have, a lot, one of the reasons why a lot of knife aficionados hate it is because it's got an interrupted pattern in it and, uh, and that makes for easier clearing and less kind of gumming up of the abrasive as you're working, but like real, real hardcore people don't like it. I like it fine. What I like about this one is it stays flat forever, it's very thin, it's not very heavy. It's unbreakable, unwarpable, and doesn't need to be uh, dressed. So I get the two, in- the ten-inch uh, Duo Sharp. I buy it in, um, I buy it in fine. Uh, the one I get is fine slash uh, extra fine, which is twenty-five micron grit on the fine side and nine micron grit on the other. I think I've also said before. And if you're a freaking psycho and you like super high, uh, like, su- polishing stuff out, uh, DMT now makes uh, an 8-inch stone, unfortunately not a 10, that is like a straight diamond with no interrupted holes that has a, um, a super extra fine 3-micron uh, grit, which is, like, insanely small. That's as small as most of the high-end Japanese stuff. That will take it to uh, a polish. But… Uh, as I've said many times before, Japanese grits and American grits don't correlate with each other. The Japanese grit numbers being higher for the equivalent thing than an American grit number. And secondly, uh, an actual grit number isn't necessarily going to uh, indicate everything. It indicates a certain particle size, but not a spread and distribution of particle sizes, nor how they are bound to the substrate. So there's a lot to be known. And what I really recommend you all do, if you're interested in abrasives, is go to the Unified Abrasives Manufacturer Association, U-A-M-A. A.org and go to their uh, section called Abrasive Grains 101. And they have a great little web um, thingamajig on kind of what is actually going on, like what the grains look like, what the different materials are, why you would use different materials, and what that means. But if you just want the simple answer, go get a, T- a DMT 10-inch uh, duo sharp uh, green slash red. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. And we got one last uh, thingamajiggy in from Chris who says... Uh, and he just calls you out he just says hey nastasha he doesn't give a crap about the rest of us does not care anyway <laughs> yeah right uh, Ruman and Polson just released their latest on Salumi and in fact uh, I just got it I just got the new Salumi book is it actually out yet or not do you know yeah anyway I have it I have it, you know, because I got it. I got it. Anyway, uh, Roman and Poston just released their latest on Salumi uh, and go into some fair detail on whole pig butchery, curing, etc. Where it comes up a little short is on specifics for curing chambers. How much airflow do you need? Mechanisms for controlling humidity, minimum practical sizes, etc. Do you guys have a good reference for someone trying to set up a small slash trial and development scale chamber? I want to uh, give some copa and lard a shot. Lardo, I guess, before committing to a larger setup for the shop, so is it going to have to live in an apartment until I can convince the boss that it's ready for prime time? Also, in what may be a long shot, the website for National Center for Home Food Preservation publication seems to have been shut down. Any chance you or Dave has a copy of their curedmeats.pdf, referenced in the November fifteenth, two 2011 radio show, I think, or know a place to grab it? Uh, okay, so I went on the National uh, I went on the National Center for Home Curing and Food uh, Preservation, and I didn't go, get to go back to listen to what I said but most of their publications are back up so I don't know if you had a temporary problem whether it was temporarily broken and now it's back but if it's still down I'll look for the specific one that you need to find some of them are organized in a wonky way like you have to click next 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 to get through it and you can't download it easily but it seems to be there now, back to uh, Roman Polson. One of the great things I saw about it is uh, they, they actually, very early in the book, said something that uh, I need, people need to say more often. They said, uh, when you're making salumi in America, do not try to make Italian salumi in America. Make American salumi. And I think that's a great great thing. So for instance, Sam, uh, Sam Edwards, our, our good friend and one of the benefactors of the Heritage Radio, uh, he sells his hams as Suriano, trying to piggyback on Serrano style hams, which I think is a mistake. And I've told him this to his face. This is no- nothing he doesn't like already know that I think is a mistake, because I think American hams are amazing, delicious, and they're their own product. They shouldn't be compared to Spanish hams. They shouldn't be compared to Italian hams. They're American products. And the same goes with, if you're making some here, don't try to make an Italian product, make what, make an American I mean you can use Italian techniques but you should be shooting if you're trying to shoot to make somebody else's product then all you're ever going to be is a runner up to their product, if you try to make your own product Uh, then you get to be the best at that and you can focus on what makes it better, what makes it worse, which isn't to say you don't respect and love the procedures, techniques and flavors that someone uses in a place like Italy. But I'll tell you what uh, Fong told us. from What's the Imperial Tea Court, right? Is the name of his place, Stas? We went out and visited. He's growing tea in California now and I asked him, I was like, what do you want the tea to taste like? He said was probably the most profound thing he could say about this. He says, I want it to taste like California wants tea to taste. In other words, he wants to make tea that tastes like what tea should taste like when it's grown to the best of its abilities in california anyway so i thought that was a good point that uh Ruman and polson brought up in that uh but then let's go on to your actual question if you want to see what real badass curing technology is like before i get into your actual answer see how long it takes me to get into an actual answer it's ridiculous nostalgia shaking her head and giving me her i hate you face okay uh, the italian company travel which is, you know, spelled Travaglini, Travaglini, right? Uh, are the world's greatest curing, drying, aging, uh, and like ham and salumi production equipment machine people in the world they are the best bar none they are amazing in fact they're the company I always point at when I say that technology can be used for good in the production of food rather than just for making it cheaper because these guys have developed curing rooms and aging rooms that are specifically designed to mimic what goes on they originally built it around what goes on in Parma like in a Parma ham so they they get humidity uh, they get temperature they cycle the humidity and the temperature inside the place to uh, mimic the day In day, the day, night, day in out uh, changes and seasonal changes in the ham because that's what's what's driving the aging in a long cured process like ham is not just the humidity and the temperature but the shift in humidity and temperature from both season to season and through day night. Uh, Okay, so look at their stuff if you want to see some real badassery. Okay, now you're true, you're exactly correct. In the book, I looked and they all do have a you know rather um, that's paltry kind of a amount of information on how to make a curing thing. Remember this. The smaller a curing chamber is, the less, it's, the less stable it's going to be over time. People really, and they do mention this a lot, which is probably why they don't really go into it too much, people love their curing rooms. Going back to Sam Edwards, who I talked about before, he has a number of curing uh, houses for his hams, and he says he can know which one. You could blindfold him, bring him into one, and he'll know which one it is based on smell because curing houses develop their own set of microflora and fauna i guess over time and those are going to influence the flavor of each one of the products so it's incredibly important so you're not going to get probably a stability of flavor in a small thing because it's too easy to push a small item one way or the other same way it's hard to get a small fish tank to stay uh, in good shape forever because if it goes a little bit off it goes way off whereas larger fish tanks can be more self-corrective because they're larger systems that said um if you want to, if you want to, basically just hey say hey look, you don't want you said airflow. I don't have a lot of data right now on airflow, but you you need. Uh uh, you don't want too much airflow because it's going to uh, cause case hardening on the outside, drying off. But you know, some might be there. But the, for the best deal in control of a small setup, and by that I mean you're pr- going to convert a fridge to an aging chamber, or you're going to convert, you know, I don't know, some sort of like a small box that I, I could not believe what a cheap deal it is. And they're going to be back in stock. They say in, sep- in September on September 20th. Go to Auburn Instruments. I've used one of their things. It's fine. It's okay. They're the cheapest people in the world. Auburn Instruments. And check this out for nine. 97 bucks they have a plug and play temperature and humidity controller that already has the sensor on it so what you do is you just plug in a humidifier or a dehumidifier and a heating element into it and they handle up to 10 amps and put it in and just dial in what you want it to be Right, So there's two ways you can do this. If you know that your chamber is always going to have too low of a humidity, then you could attach a humidifier to it and jack the humidity into it. If you know that the humidity is always going to be too uh, – it's, it's going to be – sorry, it's going to be too humid, then you can add a dehumidifier to it. So – uh, another way you could do it, for instance, you can set the humidity of a chamber by doing something like – like if you go to oh, – Google saturated salt solution uh, RH, standing for relative humidity. So sodium uh, – N-A-C-L, so you know sodium chloride, table salt, saturated solution. If you have a saturated solution that's sitting in your chamber, the chamber is going to equilibrate to 75 percent humidity. So if you want lower than that, then you could put a dehumidifier on that sucker and you know that you're always going to need to dehumidify it slightly to get it down to 60 or 70 percent humidity when you're, when you're going. If you know, if, if, if the other way to do it is if you know that you're always in a relatively non-humid environment, you could put a fan which moves a little bit of air out of it to keep the humidity down and then put a humidifier attached to it that makes it humid as it goes. Bup, 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 bup. So that's the, that's the way I, I would go about doing it and it's cheap and it should work. We'll see you when you get back, when I get back, for Columbia Cooking Issues. <music>